Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom is Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host coming to you from Kansas City, Missouri, this uh, edition of the Gist of Freedom. Our producer is Leslie Gist, and if you haven't visited her Facebook page today, I suggest you do that. Uh, that's Leslie, L-E-S-L-E-Y, Gist, G-I-S-T, and where she is discussing the verdict, the Zimmerman verdict, the not guilty verdict there in Stanford, Florida, and how it is akin to uh, taking us all the way back to Dred Scott decision, 1857. Black folks have no rights, and now one's life, which a white man is bound to respect, and also some kinship to the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. We're coming to you over WWW Block uh, History Radio. These shows are archived and are available at WWW Black History university.com and uh, they are free of charge and um, I want to check to see if Leslie is on the on the line with me right now okay here we go yes I'm here but our guest Jeremy Williams the great author and playwright of Detroit is on the line Jeremy are you on yeah, I'm here. Yes, yep, I'm Jeremy. right here. Jeremy used to be my host. Uh, Preston, he was a wonderful host. Um, but right now he's going to talk about one of his plays. Uh, Jeremy, please call, tell the audience about this exciting play that's going to take place yeah. in Detroit. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Thank you. Um but the, the the verdict is is interesting too, and, and, and uh, hopefully we'll get back to that. Um, the play is called um, "Presumed Incompetent," and it's a play about uh, a professor, an African American female, who's having trouble uh, trying to find her her place in academia, in the rigorous racist academia, a university, a, a white <laughs> department, and she's trying to find her place in that. Well, it sounds like a great. That sounds like a great title for the uh, prosecution prosecutors of the Trayvon Martin murder case. Yeah, that, that that uh that uh that verdict yeah that that kind of broke my heart, man. It it really 
it really, I don't know, it just kind of, I, I thought the guy was going to go to prison. <laughs> I, I did. I was like, I, and when he got off, I couldn't believe it. But, it, you know, it breaks your heart to know that, mm-hmm. you know, it, a, a, a person, uh, because it is a, ra- a racial uh, situation, any way you look at it. And it reminded and, and me. And you, you personally, you have sons, and didn't you? You no, know, sure tell I do. Us yeah, about your, two boys. your relationship with your boys, and you know, if you had to go, and tell us about your relationship. How did you prepare them for the social ills and injustice of their day? It, but now it's much worse. Yeah, it is much worse. I think education. I, I for raising my boys, I, I always stress the importance of uh, education. That's that's a uh, key. I think. Um, uh, but a lot of things happened <laughs> with my two boys, especially growing up uh, in a mm-hmm. predominantly white area. And, um, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I did think about it. I, I never really had any issues uh, growing up in that white area, really, uh, because they had all they brought all kind of friends to the house. Uh, and it's funny because my my boys thought I was the angry. <laughs> Angry black man. <laughs> they would, you know, bring their white friends over and, you know, dad, be cool. And I, and I wasn't really like that. But it was just interesting uh, growing up with two boys in a uh, predominantly white area. And it did make me, the Trayvon uh, situation did make me think about it because it, be, it could have been any one of our kids. Um, mm-hmm. And, again, I, I just thought that guy was going to jail. I, I could not believe he was acquitted. I just couldn't believe it. It made me think of the, of the whole image. Hill situation, but it made mm-hmm. me think of that in, uh, in two ways. Of course, here you have another uh, young black uh, man killed by a white guy. Clearly, a, a racial situation. But on the other end, as I thought about the similarities between the Trayvon Martin and the Emmett Till, I thought about what happened when Emmett Till uh, was killed. How it galvanized mm-hmm. the nation, and it mm-hmm. you know kind of went right into the next decade of the civil rights. Uh, uh, decade. So it galvanized black people, black and white people, really, but galvanized mm-hmm. black people. We got together and we did something about it. Now, you know, uh, the thing that I noticed about the Trayvon thing, especially even in the aftermath of the acquittal, is most of the anguish is on, uh, it, it's an internet kind of thing. Facebook, of, of course. Um, so for mm-hmm. me, it's about what we, what would have happened had this been, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. And the complacency since then, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, uh, mm-hmm. because again, the the Emmett Till situation moved the nation. Man, people people got up. His mom, um, and even his mom saw the importance of the education because after he died, she goes to college and to educate herself and spent the rest of her life, you know, as a crusader, you know, for mm-hmm. civil rights. And on Do and you on think and on. If Trayvon was educated, that that would have saved his life. No, I think if he was white, he would that would have saved his life. You know, I, I think, I, but I think, I think that I I, I don't think I think the, the 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 Zimmerman guy saw a young black kid uh, and he was threatened. I think he was scared, but I don't. I think, I, and I understand what you're saying, but I think that who knows uh, the turn of events. Preceding that, which may have happened, which may have made the situation a little different. Um, but overall, I think I think the white guy saw a black kid in, in 
somewhere where he thought he shouldn't have been. And I think that's what kid. I, I think it was clearly a, a, a racial situation. There's no other way to look at it. Of, do you do you think he would have gotten out that car if he did not have a gun? <laughs> no. No. So then, what does that say maybe, about the gun laws? You know, I don't think changing the. I don't think. Well, I don't know. I, I don't think the gun law mattered. I think if, if a person, I think if a person, you know, wants to get a gun and go and do harm, that's what they're going to do, whether it's underground or over the counter. <laughs> and I don't think, you know, I don't think the so gun you, law you, is going to. You think that Zimmerman. Would have would have gotten a gun illegally I to think shoot Zimmerman, uh, a so-called uh, suspect. Because uh, do you think that his uh, his um, access to to a gun and being able to conceal it and start a fight, uh, not letting your not letting Trayvon know that he had a weapon, is a crime in I itself? Th- okay. Yeah, but let's deal with the first issue. Do would Zimmerman have been able to get a, a gun if the laws were uh, stricter? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. If if he wanted to be a what is it? He calls himself a watchman, a neighborhood watchman. No, he wasn't. Here's here's I think I think Zimmerman was a white guy who set out to protect his neighborhood or keep certain people out of his neighborhood. And I think after that, because that's the premise here, that's the you gotta understand the white supremacist nature of Zimmerman's whole thing. And I think for him he was a white guy who didn't like black boys hanging around his neighborhood. And I think from that point mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. I think okay. from that point on he set about the business of doing whatever he had to do to and you know enforce his ideology with whether it was get a gun or a stick or a knife. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think point. first first it was a first it was about you know upholding a, a white supremacist ideology for Zimmerman. Mm-hmm. First, I don't want no niggas around here. Period. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they live. Yes, in, but African Americans African Americans live in that complex. That's why. Um, yeah, Trayvon yeah, was there, so he knew that, yeah, that this was not an all-white complex. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that Zimmerman it was didn't like, feel it like... It was like shooting fish in a bowl. He knew that there were some blacks that lived in that neighborhood. Yeah, but that speaks more to the whole irrationality of white supremacy. I think for Zimmerman, yeah, it might have been a blacks living in a compound, which was fine mm-hmm. for him so long as they remained in their place, mm-hmm. not roaming the streets at night around white folk, around white girls, <laughs> around white homes. So long as they remain, and that, that, that we go back to slavery, Jim Crow, on and on. Long as they remain in their place. One of the things that the South was saying when the whole uh, civil rights movement was going crazy was, ain't nothing wrong with our niggas down here. That niggas are doing good. They, they know their place. <laughs> so Zimmerman yeah. is still coming from a, a, a white uh, supremacist mindset. Yeah, it might have been a, a, a black people living in there, but they were in their place. They go to work, go home, stay on your porch or whatever, but not walking around white 
neighborhood white houses at night, unaccounted for. The real question is what would have happened if the real question is what would have happened had not 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 the easy question of what if uh Trayvon Martin was white, but what if a white boy was with him? <laughs> Might have been totally different. Might have been totally mm-hmm. different. So mm-hmm. I don't know. He, it's, it's still a, yeah yeah black people lived in the neighborhood, but it's still a white supremacist agenda. We need to make mm-hmm. sure they stay in their places. Mm-hmm. Anything so, for you, Preston? No, I think uh, it's a very good point he's bringing up in terms of mm-hmm. black people living in the neighborhood, but. Mm-hmm. You're black and in the neighborhood, you should know your place. And uh, I mean, that's, well, you know, you, 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 just one more point. You got to understand when Emmett Hill was killed, uh, Ray Bryant and Malam, black people live right next door and in back of them. <laughs> it wasn't like they came from, you know what I mean? It was, it was thoroughly, it was thoroughly uh, integrated. They lived, mm-hmm. th- those who I got to kill him and kill had white neighbors. Matter of fact, black guys held them that night. So, so it's still a white supremacist thing. We don't mind living with them. We don't even mind shopping with them. As long as they know their place. And that night, he saw Trayvon Martin, a, a, a young black kid who wasn't in his place, which meant at home. Yeah, you're right. And, and, and what, what um, the facts that say that you're right is because he had made 52 phone calls to the cops, and I guess he yeah. really wanted, he was trying to institute his own stop and frisk, you know, his his one-man stop and frisk uh, mission. And when the cops didn't come and really uh, harass black kids who were walking around in this complex, as you say, out of place, out of time, he didn't want them walking around, period, he would call the police on them. So his frustration seemed Right. It's, it seems like his frustration began to mount where he said, I'm just going to take this into my own hands. And next yeah. time I see one walking, I'm going to do my own version of stop and frisk. And it went really, really bad. Um, you know, so in yeah, that, they, that they, case. They told him not mm-hmm. to follow him, didn't they? Yeah, they told him to stay in the car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, but he, you know, in true white supremacist fashion, no, I'm going to take care of this. You know, in true Wild West, John Wayne fashion, he went after the kid, and the kid got killed as a result. Right. And it, I can't, yeah, again, I can't believe that. I can't believe he was acquitted, man. It was just a heartbreak. I just knew they were going to at least get a guy sometime. But, you know, it's an all-white jury? I mean, you really thought that, that an yeah. all-white jury was going to put him, I guess, because you're still lingering over the Obama election, <laughs> that you thought an well, all-white jury... This is not Iowa. Here's what I thought. No, yeah, you you're right. It wasn't all white jury, all white women. But at some point, and only only black people have the burden of this illusion. I thought that mm-hmm. the women mothers would. Yeah, I thought the, the humanity would kick in and say, "Wait a minute," mm-hmm. and they wouldn't see a black black boy. They would have saw that this is son like my son. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. This right. is a this is a child like my nephew or my neighbors. I thought some humanity would kick in, which would override race and prejudice, and that alone would make them see the fairness in convicting that guy. That's what I thought. That might have prevailed. That might have prevailed if it was anywhere but Stanford, Florida. Right. You know. Those white women sitting there was five and one uh, Hispanic, 
um, have the same fear, the same fears uh, that apparently Mr. Zimmerman had. And speaking of Obama as a text, remember the haters are out there. I mean, throughout this nation, there has been one hell of a backlash when Obama mm-hmm. got elected, and especially for that second term. The mm-hmm. nation has been gripped, that is a portion of our nation, has been gripped with the fact that Obama is in there for a second uh, a second term. And lo and behold, what's going to happen with the next uh, presidential election? The Supreme Court has gone crazy, came uh, mm-hmm. on the Voting Rights Act. Uh, they're probably going to chip away at affirmative action next. So that they emboldens, are. Yeah. That emboldens yeah. individuals like Mr. Zimmerman. Okay. What do you think, the- Preston? What do you think, Preston, and I guess Jeremy, um, about uh-huh. this petition that the NAACP has started for the Justice Department to arrest, rearrest Zimmerman and charge him for federal hate crimes and civil rights crimes? Well, well, I wouldn't want to. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jeremy. Go ahead, Jeremy. I wouldn't want to be the president of the United States because there is no way I could sit back uh, as a black president uh, and not do something, not to to not turn, almost make it racial, and 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 use all of my powers and my might and my will. To do something to that guy, to see that that guy go back before the court. So I, when I heard that the uh, people were saying, "Oh, Obama's going to do this," and I was like, "Man, I wouldn't want to be a president at this time because you can't help but be a black president at this moment dealing dealing with the Zimmerman case." You know what I mean? There's no way to there's, go ahead. No, no, go keep going. I didn't know you were. Well, go ahead. You, you, I wouldn't want to be the guy standing. Up, on, on Capitol Hill talking about the Zimmerman being politically correct when it is clearly a miscarriage of justice. And I just wouldn't want that job at that moment. Mm-hmm. That's an honest, honest statement. But what do you have to say about how he responded when when poor little Zimmerman, I mean, when uh, poor little Martin, uh, Trayvon Martin was uh, murdered? He did give a statement, a passionate one. And a lot of people were surprised about it, about it too. Jeremy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, again, you know, he's still, I think something that, I think there's something that connects us all as a group, as an ethnic group, racial group, whatever you want to say. And uh, even still, uh, to me, it's, uh, what would he have said had he had not been the president? Maybe a senator, maybe a mayor, maybe a principal of a, of a school. <laughs> you know what I mean? So maybe that a white president. Your... <laughs> exactly. So I don't know. I just wouldn't have. I remember thinking, man, I I, I wouldn't want to be in his shoes because I wouldn't be able to hold back. I probably would have been impeached the next hour just on what I how responded to this yeah. case, you know, because it's like that. You know, it, 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 and I, I personally don't walk around. I, I don't walk around with, you know, harboring white, you know, hatred or, you know, I don't. My mom never taught that to me. I don't, definitely don't teach it to my kids, but. At that moment, you know, it becomes it's, it's so racial, you know, and, it, and, it, and it's so white supremacist. How do you contain that? And I don't think the burden of that needs to rest with us, whether we're the president, the high school teacher, or, you know, 
or, 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 or any person in, that's supposed to be in a position of power and that's supposed to contain themselves. I just wouldn't want to be in that situation. I would want to nut up with everybody else. Mm. I would yeah. want to be in a, yeah. have a moment of solidarity with everybody else. I just would. Mm. So I'm glad I'm that's just a high professor. We get away with all kind of stuff. We can say anything, mm. <laughs> you know. It's a learning capacity to it Go ahead Okay, Let's get back to your work Your artistic work And I really do appreciate you Spending time talking about the Trayvon Martin Because we talked about uh, You and I privately about this show And it had nothing to do with this case But you were so mm-hmm. kind to um, To share your sentiments About what's going on um, With the case But let's now uh, talk about, you know, this play. This play. The play, uh, yeah, the play, I started on the play last mm-hmm. year, and um, there's a lot of interesting things going on in uh, black academia, or in academia in general. Uh, and a lot of my friends were coming to me, my colleagues were coming to me talking about, I remember when I was at Michigan uh, State, and mm-hmm. uh a, a, a colleague came to me one day and she was telling me about her, uh, how her uh, advisor, she's in the grad program, but her advisor was treating her bad, uh, accusing her of plagiarism and telling her that uh, blacks usually don't write that well, so I have to, you know, pay special close attention to what you're doing, what you're writing, et cetera. And then later on she left and she got a job teaching in New Jersey. No, yeah. Philly. Yeah. And, and, oh. Yeah, and, and, and Philly, and, and she had this incident where she was dealing with uh, uh, white racist students who just didn't, could not uh, tolerate having a black professor on her. And, and this, these stories kept coming to me from just all over. My friends were always uh, calling me and just talking to me about, you know, the, the racism uh, within the department, racist white students, et cetera, et cetera. So here I am writing a play, and it just – Build out on the page. The name, the, the the play. I just changed the name. Actually, it, it started out as Denisio Barbier, which was the name of the mother of the main character who was experiencing all of this racism in, in the academy. Because for the for for the main character Barbara, she's trying to figure out whether or not it's genetic. You know, is is intelligence genetic? So the whole Hernstein, the bell curve, all of this stuff. These key words are coming into the play to discuss whether or not the, the whole issue of intelligence, but as Barbara is dealing with uh, the, all of this r- racist drama going on in the department between her, her students, and her uh, colleagues. So mm-hmm. there's a book now, out now. Just one more, just one mm-hmm. more point. There's a book come out mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. in the middle of drafts, and I just came across my mm-hmm. radar a couple of months ago called Presumed Incompetent by a group of uh, black, uh, women of color anyway, uh, educators who are writing pretty much on the same topic. And I'm like, wow, why not call a play presumably competent? So that's how, where the name came from, with the name changing. Now, you're a, history, a historian. Take us back to yeah. why these white schools had decided to hire black, uh, and when did they start hiring black uh, professors? And why now do you think they're saying get lost? And I have my own theory is because now HBCUs are closing and you really have no other options but to work at a white school. Wow, that's such a loaded statement. Wow. I don't think they're saying get lost. I think a lot of it, as long as the affirmative action thing is measured in 
place, then there's just a certain amount of, call it hiring, that institutions of higher learning have to do. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. The, 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 the affirmative action thing is, is not about white, because <laughs> for, white, for white people, affirmative action means hiring unqualified blacks. I mean, it, it go hand in hand. It, it, it means the same thing. You know, it's like, in other words, the, the blacks who are benefiting, so-called benefiting from the affirmative action, are automatically unqualified. Never dawned on white people that black people being hired asking for jobs in white spaces are qualified. And never dawned on them, ever. <laughs> but on the other hand, the affirmative action, the, the affirmative action measure is not about giving black folks something they don't deserve, of course, but it's not necessarily about black people totally the affirmative action measure, as I learned when I went to a debate at Michigan State Law School to find out more about the affirmative action debate, um, the affirmative action measure, it's really about fair representation for people representative of diverse ethnic, racial, sexual orientation. We need a certain amount of gays. We need a certain amount of people from upper Michigan, West Michigan, Poor whites, Jews, enough Germans, international. It's about fair representation for all minority groups, or people from different ethnic, religious, racial, so everything. It's not just about, uh, and that that's that's where the racism begins. Ironically, it begins in how white people are perceiving it. <laughs> it's, it's that black folks getting something that they deserve, or, or black folks getting in somewhere that a white person who is automatically qualified, by the way, is, is not getting. So that's what a you know the, the the prejudice and the racism over this affirmative action debate begins because there's a a, a misconception, a misunderstanding on what's re- what it's really about. And I had a hard, I had a hard time explaining it uh, to my white colleagues, white men particularly, because they think niggas is getting in somewhere where they unqualified and don't belong, and that's just not the case. That's on one end. Um, as far as uh, schools uh, schools hiring uh, black people, I think a lot of that came out of the, uh, the civil rights movement when we first began to see not just uh, black people getting, in, uh, getting hired in white universities. I think the First significant one, I don't know. I want to say significant. The first African American studies course, which was taught by, gosh, I want to say, um, what's her Here? name? She's a poet, huh? I thought it was Nathan what's Here, the friend you introduced me to. You talking about? Oh. Um, I thought Nathan Here was the first one to to start a Black History program in a university. No. no. No, no, you you're thinking about uh Milani Karinga. Aren't you? He wrote the first black studies book. But here's the point. There were a lot of people mm-hmm. that, that came out of that civil rights uh experience and they began to st- not just write uh books but create black studies programs and uh open doors for uh, black educators. Uh black educators that have always been hired generally, especially in the south. Uh, in you know uh, uh, plantation schools, ill-equipped schools, you know, because there was still the issue of uh, 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 segregation. And uh-huh. So whites were were willing to build schools 
uh, for black students where black teachers could teach. Uh, but we don't anything to keep you out of that's how the HBCUs came about really was white philanthropists willing to spend money to 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 build and uh, uh, and house uh, uh, black students and black teachers so long as they don't enroll in our schools the whole H- idea of HBCU and that's why the HBCUs have such a hard time uh, they have a hard time now financially not because of white racism but because black celebrities and black black Money people don't give back. The things that keep white universities going is is, is alumni. You know, white people die; they leave it in their will. <laughs> you know, leave leave the University of Virginia some money, X amount of dollars, and you go on these white white universities and look at all these great buildings and people. Private citizens have you know bequeathed money and and, and private white philanthropists giving money. Hospital wings, all wing of that. Mm-hmm. And you I can't be mad at that for the reason. Yeah, the reason why uh, HBCUs are suffering is because of us, really, you know. I know. And, and, and we're sagging. And, 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 excuse me? We're sagging in that area. Very you know much so, those, same, you know? those same people who have benefited from these black institutions complain that our youth sag their pants, but they are sagging in their lack of support. I heard one celebrity say on TV, how she had to go, she was upset she couldn't get to this, get, she wasn't accepted by this white institution. And she was mm-hmm. so disappointed that she had to go to this HBCU. Even though it made her very, very famous and she connected with uh, some great people on TV and in the movies, she, she still felt that she could have done a lot better if she had gone to the white school. And then to make it worse, Look, she ends by saying, but my daughter is now in that school. And never mm-hmm. really gave thanks to that HBCU. And that is the sagging attitude that the youngsters have now taken on because of the people, the talented tense, for lack of better word, are, yeah. are ashamed of the institutions that help put them in, put them in the place they are right now. Well, Go let ahead. me jump in there. I think mm-hmm. uh, the the sister who didn't want to go to HBCU or, or preferred mm-hmm. the white one, I think that's because pretty much what we were just talking about. Because I've been in both. I've I've mm-hmm. I've been in. I've visited HBCUs and I've I've been educated, yeah. of course, in Northern University. And mm-hmm. there is a difference. Um, the the HBCUs, some of which are barely able to hold on to their uh, accreditation, they are suffering technologically, financially, of course. They, but they are suffering. They have they they have no. Some of them have no libraries or libraries that students have to share, have to travel miles to get to. They have no technology. I mean, at Michigan State, they changed as so much as a as a core was upgraded on. Uh, computers. They had new. They was getting out, putting in new computers, constantly building, et cetera. And the HBCUs don't got. They ain't got no money. And you ain't got no money. Mean you ain't got no books. You ain't got no research. Proper uh, uh, state of our research facilities. You know, you you have no scholarships to to give students. You know, to be competitive. Um, no. You can't keep good quality teachers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, and that's because people like Jay Z and all these other rich billionaires they ain't, ain't putting no that's money in the pot. 
Didn't Dr. Dr. Dre just Dre give USC at three million, thirty-five million dollars or something? Did you hear crazy, about that? Man. No, I didn't. But I believe oh, it. Oh yes, Google <laughs> it. Google it. It's but, on there. So yeah, so our values, we do not value our, our history values. because. Hmm? Well, you know, I, you know, I, again, I teach, and I know what the biggest problem that my my colleagues we deal with yeah. every semester, and mm-hmm. it's a cultural thing. You know, it's it's bigger than just that. You know, we don't value uh, our, our values are misplaced, but I think it's 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 almost a cultural issue where we don't value education in general. Uh, one of the biggest problems I one of the biggest problems I have as a as a teacher is trying to get my mm-hmm. students to read. Now I teach an African American l- literature. I teach uh, introduction mm-hmm. to African American literature, and I I remember one semester it was a white guy, the only white guy in the class, matter of fact, <laughs> and he was the best student, and he was the best student not because he did uh, good ass uh, good papers. But he did the reading. <laughs> he would go to class, hey, okay, let's talk about Chapter 13. And he is the only one that raises his hand to say, hey, I, I, I did the reading. So just as a culture, you know, it's hard to get black students to read, let alone get a rich black person to, you know, uh, put some money in an HBCU. And that's a cultural thing that, you know, mm-hmm. we still deal with. We still mm-hmm. deal with. Mm-hmm. And as I think, you know, if the government, if the government, no, the government knows knows what's going on, and I can understand them not wanting to put, you know, when it comes time to budget and put give government money to schools. I can understand them passing over an HBCU. I really can, <laughs> because that's just where we are, man. You know, and it it was a time when we we kind of you know saw about each other. We we as a community, we built our own schools and et cetera, et cetera. And now, well, there was a speech given by Martha King, who said that we spend more money and uh, on whiskey. This is the speech was given at Bennett College, another HBCU. Mm-hmm. And he said we yeah. spend more money on whiskey per year than we do, uh, as you stated, giving money to charity to these HBCUs and these black institutions. And he, he, I got it on tape, and maybe I'll end the show with that speech if I can find it. I don't know. But anyway, he was making a point that we, at that time, were starting to shut down our support of these institutions. And with that said, I have bought the rights to screen the film The Contradictions of Fair Hope. And I really want a screening. And I know we talked about other um, film screening at a bookstore in Detroit. But I would like to screen mm-hmm. that film, and it talks about what we're talking about right now. How is it that our mutual aid societies are that help create a whole lot of institutions that brought us out of slavery and um, into the 60s? How is it that they, they're all gone, the hospitals, the uh, uh, orphans, orphanages, the schools, of course, you know, what happened to that spirit of community and loving your thy brother and thy neighbor, and now we just want to uh, be associated with wealth and status and accepted by the outside clan? 
Well, some of the old heads will point the finger at, you know, integration. You know, the people mm-hmm. who were living and can remember life before integration, you know, a good life, you know, and when the mm-hmm. black community and black businesses and wealth and economic, strong economic community, mm-hmm. they remember those days. And when you ask them that same question, they would say uh, in a, integration ruined all of that, that cohesive mm-hmm. family community, strong us together against the world kind of reality. Uh, and then I think, I, because that that's a loaded question too, and we could spend the rest of the year just dealing with it, not really trying to answer mm-hmm. it, just dealing with it, un, you know, unraveling mm-hmm. it, unloading it, unpacking it. But I think, I don't know, it's like the more, as time goes, the more, you know, white-like blacks want to be. I mean, now, I mean, you heard the joke, the new black disease is vitiligo. You know, you got the money, they change their skin colors and stuff like that. I mean, the more and more we move forward, the more we adopt Western white ways, you know. Um, and with this and that's murder. In a nutshell. Right. With the murder, don't you think that's going to make more people buy this product to lighten up their skin? Because I'm, I'm very dark. Um <sighs> My whole family is. Um, you know, so, mm-hmm. well, the, you know, it's a question of, you know, as a black person, you know, what would, you know, if you had the money, you know, I guess, to lighten your skin, you know, would you, you know, and that's, that's, you know, a lot of celebrities are doing that now, you know, um, but I think that for the most part, we, we, we are still dealing with the ravages, the psychological Conditional slavery, uh, because when you think of it, you know, it took it took a long time to 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 destroy black psychology, you know, to to to, to screw black people up. It, it took hundreds of years, at least one hundred fifty, three hundred cops that we know of that we can document. Some people say five hundred, six hundred, whatever, but I'm talking about that we can document. Well, it just think it's going to take probably another two hundred years. 300 years to, to, to get us back on track, whatever that means. And, and for me, getting back on track mm-hmm. is simply stop calling each other the N-word. Stop calling, referring yeah. to each other the niggas. And, 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 and coming up with some stupid philosophy that E-R and A on the end means something. <laughs> so just, to, just, just that, you know, to deal with that, I think it's going to take a, a, a lot of time to just deal with what slavery did psychologically mm-hmm. to black people, so it ain't it, you know mm-hmm. there's no gonna be no change overnight. But I think mm-hmm. the point I'm making, where I was going with all mm-hmm. that, is this: I think mm-hmm. that deep down, really, really deep down, we not only believe what white folks say about us, but we are still trying to make ourselves better. Which means, you know, James Barber say racial progress really means, you know, how how white can we be? You know, making mm-hmm. and that's true. I, I think that's 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 the situation right now. You know, we we care mm-hmm. what they think. We and we want to please them and and everything. You know, it's, it's like mm-hmm. it's like when you it's like when the other day I was sitting with my friend, a, a black person, and we were in a restaurant and he was saying something about white people. Might have been a Trayvon situation, waiting for the verdict. I don't remember. And he was saying something about white people, and he started whispering. <laughs> I'm like, what you went through for? <laughs> See, that, that's the psychology, though. 
He he afraid mm-hmm. to say something about white people. He got a whisper. Yeah, man, I'm like, oh, that's just being polite. <laughs> No, you know, your ears perk up when you hear a white person, a black person. There's some words that you say in conversation that people all, you know, they heighten their alertness when they hear certain words. You know, yeah, and I understand that. First of all, he wasn't saying nothing racist. (laughs) Two is, I I, I think, uh, uh, yeah, I think what uh, James, uh, what Paul Mooney said, and the dad said, why are you Mm -hmm. so hard on, why do you say, you know, you just, you so, you so vicious, things you said about Mm -hmm. white people. He says, when I was growing up, they they didn't hold back. You know, they said whatever they want, negative, don't come in our school, yada, yada, yada. So, Mm -hmm. the only reason why they stopped is because, they wanted to preserve their reputations and their property. And so you just can't say nigga no more. You just can't be white president. The law changed, in other words. But this this brother wasn't saying that bad. He was talking about, you know, a situation, or, or what he perceived to be a white prejudice situation. And he was whispering. And I, mm-hmm. and that to me, that, that that's representative, representative of, of the psychology, you know, of, of oppression. Mm-hmm. We, 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 we afraid to even, you know, speak of injustice. In the presence of other white people, uh, to even talk about them. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it's gonna take a long time to to for for black people to heal. Because anytime you sitting up using uh, uh, an oppressive word like nigga and trying to rearrange it and say no, nah, I really mean this. It's 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 a term of endearment. You your head something wrong with your head. Because <laughs> because mm-hmm. nigger nigger or whatever ain't never meant nothing but what it has always meant historically. Anytime the oppressed takes that word and try to change it around, actually mm-hmm. believing that it means some. If you take the E R off and put the A on, something is wrong with that person psychologically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And nobody mm-hmm. else does that. Nobody. You notice no no other ethnic group take a a a a a bad word epithet. A, a racially derogatory word and try to rearrange the meaning to use so they can use it among each, themselves as a racial group. Nobody. So I mean, they 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 using the N word in Argentina now. <laughs> you know, it's just crazy, man. But that's that's the psychology I'm talking about. It's gonna take a long time for black people to truly get to the point where we love ourselves. You know, our mm-hmm. black skin mm-hmm. or our whatever, our nappy heads. You know, we gonna it's gonna take right. a long time for, to get there, because it took a long time to 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 f the black mind up. It took a very long time. Over you think of a lot of times we don't think of the the length of slavery. To, to you know, some people were born in slavery and died in slavery. You know, things that we we'll never know. We'll never experience and. We know what it does, you know, and what it has done economically and somewhat physically, et cetera, but mentally, you know, I think there's still healing to be done, you know, still healing to be done. Well, Jeremy, you know that we can talk for hours. Um, Oh, is it over? It's 845, friend. Um, Oh, okay. uh, Well, you know, I'll be back. You're going to have me back on anyway. Yeah, you're going to be on three times uh, before you're the opening of the play, the first night. Um, we yes. want to do a show there. Uh, hopefully we get a reading. You think we have some of your people come on and do a reading for us? We'll, they would we'll love to do that. They would love okay. to do that. So we have you booked for that. Um, as usual, it's, it's always great talking to you. 
just give us a little bit more information about what's going on in Detroit as far as with the writers, and then give us all your contact information, all of it, because you got like 9,000 sites. <laughs> no, I don't. I got one. <laughs> but uh, there's a lot going on uh, with uh, the Detroit uh, writing community, some very interesting things. People are publishing. Mm-hmm. People are writing. People are performing poetry. And there, there's something of a renaissance going on, I think. I said that in 2009. I think it's still going on. But that's what we're going to talk about when I return to your show as host. I want to bring some people with me, some writers, of course, and we're going to get down. We're going to talk about it. Here's my contact info. Uh, it's at pushnevada.com. That's where everything is, uh, P-U-S-H-N-E-V-A-H-D-A.com. That's my website, and the play is going to drop October 5 and 6, and we're going to at the Detroit International Center, and we're going to have a good time. We're going to have a good time. Wonderful. And uh, Preston, any parting words, any questions before we let Mr. Push Nevada, Jeremy Williams, Black Bottom Detroit author? <laughs> right, right. Preston, did we lose Preston? Is he gone? Uh, I don't I have time to look at I took over the interview. I'm sorry. Yeah, I guess he faced the black. But I like talking to you, Jeremy You know you know how it is um, yeah. So we're going to end this show right now We'll be talking to you At least four times Before October 5th yeah. And yeah. Um, you know Let's stay calm with this verdict And fight on the next level we'll Take it to the federal case And we'll be alright all right. All right. Okay, I'll talk to you soon all right. Thanks for having okay. me Bye-bye.